Hello everyone, this is Bola, founder and CEO of Clever Girl Finance and welcome to the Clever Girl Snow Podcast. So today I'm really excited to introduce my guest. My guest today on the podcast is Alexandra Labenthal. So Alexandra is fondly known as the Queen of Wall Street and she has led companies on Wall Street for over 30 years. Most recently, she was the CEO of Leventhal Holdings, a diversified financial services firm that included the nation's largest woman-owned broker-dealer. And Alexandra comes from a very storied Wall Street family. Her grandparents founded Labenthal & Co., a municipal bond specialist in 1925. And Alexandra, like I mentioned, is one of the most recognizable women on Wall Street. She is a frequent commentator in the media, an official CNBC contributor, and a highly sought-after speaker on a wide range of topics, including financial services, capital markets, and women in business topics. So I was just really honored to have her um, spare some time to talk to us on the podcast. Alexandra is amazing. And I met Alexandra because we both sat on a female founders panel at Princeton University, and it was just really insightful to learn more about her and her story. And on this episode, we discussed everything from women and money, her story on Wall Street, why money is important for women, teaching her kids about money, money tips for new investors, business tips for entrepreneurs, changing your mindset about money, tips on networking, and so much more. She shared a ton of gems on this episode. But before we get into the episode, if you haven't already subscribed to the Clever Girls Know podcast, please subscribe. And if you're loving what you're listening to, please leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. So you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and you can also watch videos and listen to episodes on the Clever Girl Finance YouTube channel. And I wanted to say a big thank you to everyone who has picked up the Clever Girl Finance book. The book is doing so well. It is officially getting put into libraries for all of you who have made that request. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your images on social media and tagging the Clever Girl Finance account. Thank you for leaving reviews on the book and telling your friends and family about it. To be honest, I have been very, very overwhelmed with the feedback and the positive reaction from the book, and I'm just very, very grateful. So if you haven't already picked up a copy of the Clever Girl Finance book, head over to wherever you purchase books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, your local bookstore, and get your copy. Also, another update I wanted to share is that at the end of August, on Saturday, August 31st, I will be in Atlanta for a Clever Girl Finance book event. So we just had a book event in New York a few weeks ago, and it was just really amazing. It was planned on short notice, and despite that, um, it was sold out, even though it was on a Tuesday night and planned in less than a week. And so I was just really excited and honored and also humbled to see everyone who came out, including my expert friends who came to share their tips and stories. And so we're going to be doing something similar in Atlanta on August 31st. I will put the link with details in the show notes of this episode. And in the meantime, you can head over to cleverwellfinance.com book to check out some of the photos from the New York City event. And finally, if it's been a while since 
since you stopped by clevergirlfinance.com, head over to the website, check out our blog, check out our courses. We are now offering individual courses and course bundles, and we've made a ton of updates and new additions. We are at 35 plus courses now, and I'm just really excited to see the growth, to see our community grow, and more importantly, or most importantly, to see the impact of change that our resources are having on the women who are involved. And so I love getting the testimonies and the feedback about changed mindsets and improved finances. And as you guys know, I'm a huge, I'm a huge, huge advocate when it comes to us as women taking ownership of our finances. So if you are kind of like in the space where you feel like you haven't done that great this year, or you know, you want to make that extra effort to accomplish your goals that you have set, especially now that we have like four and a half months left. Isn't that crazy? Four and a half months left in 2019. Um, stop by clevergirlfinance.com and connect with us. We'd love to have you join our platform and our community. So, with all of that being said, let's get into this episode with Alexandra. Hi, Alexandra. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. Welcome to the Clever Girls Know podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about who you are and what you do. So I'm Alexandra Labenthal, and I have spent most of my career, well, all of it, on Wall Street. For many years, I ran Labenthal & Company, which was a firm that was founded by my grandmother and grandfather in 1925. Uh, it was founded as a municipal bond firm and stayed that way for many years. I ran it from 1995 until 2001, turned it into a full wealth management business. I subsequently sold that business. Four years later, I restarted as a women-owned firm in wealth management, asset management, and capital markets, uh, and did that for the next 10 years and now have spent the last couple of years kind of refocusing, working as an advisor uh, with some female-led companies and also working on some other unrelated projects, but all kind of focused on, on women. And I love that, um, you know, I, you and I met on a panel and you subsequently took me out to lunch, which was amazing. <laughs> and I really love the mission and path that you're on now. And I'm very inspired by your personal story. So uh, you are very commonly known as the queen of Wall Street <laughs> because, you know, just given your background, um, you open the doors for many women to become successful on Wall Street. And so I know you mentioned, you know, your grandmother started in this path, but what made you be interested in going into your family business? Well, it's funny because I wanted to be an actress, actually, for most of my uh, high school years and into college. And then I gradually realized that, you know, I could see myself thanking the Academy, but I couldn't really <laughs> see myself being excited about doing a summer stock show in the Midwest or something. And it kind of hit me that I needed to have the passion to do that as much as I had the passion to imagine myself getting an Academy Award. Um, and so I didn't really quite know what I wanted to do. And um, I actually almost went into the fashion business, which uh, many would say I should have done. Um, <laughs> You're definitely I, very stylish. <laughs> Um, and I do love that, love that world. But um, I ended up, you know, I, I ended up working at a firm no longer here, Kidder Peabody. And I didn't, 
at the time think this was going to be my career. I didn't necessarily think that I was going to end up going to the family business. And um, so I think what happens is that you've been doing something for a while and all of a sudden you look around and realize, oh, this is actually what I, what I do now. The funny thing is really about being on Wall Street is that I was never good at math. I never enjoyed math. And one could raise their eyebrow and say, well, why are you in a numbers-based business? But to me, my role and my jobs and my career and focus have always been about people as opposed to numbers. So the numbers are sort of secondary to working with someone, um, helping someone, selling something, developing something, then the actual math aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because I think sometimes when people think about these really big, high-profile careers or businesses, they assume that you have to be the expert in every single thing, including in your case, like the math part. You know, but that's not necessarily the case. Right. You always have people in any job who have a particular expertise or function. Um, and that's what makes a company successful is having people with a lot of different capabilities. Because you can hire to support that exactly. Right. Correct. Correct. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned as a founder, you know, starting out, it was a company of just me, you know, doing everything. And I kind of felt this overwhelming pressure to be the expert at everything. And I started to realize that number one, that's not sustainable. And number two, trying to be the expert at everything means that there are things that I'm just not going to be good at, regardless of how much I try. And then it also opened my eyes up to the fact that I need to in order to build a good company, in order to build a great company, I have to leverage people who can do the job better than me. Right. Well, one of the ways that I also learned this was when I became the CEO of the company when I was 31, I was surrounded by people who had been in their jobs running areas for years and had an expertise that um, I just, it just didn't exist for me. And so learning to rely on those people and respecting their expertise was really important to ultimately having a company that was successful. Mm-hmm. So I want to kind of get into some of that, of some of that story, you know, back in the day when you were in this early stage of working at your company, building a bigger business. And in comparison to your grandmother's experience, she, you know, you, you mentioned that the family business was started in 1925. The idea of women even working on was was so foreign. Um, So very, very different world. And I, the business, not only when I started in the business, but even over the last 10 or 15 years evolved so dramatically from what it was. I mean, when she and my grandfather started the company, I mean, just think about it. They were the only technology was the ticker tape as related to to (laughs) the stock market. Everything was done by hand, even yield to maturity, which now we just, uh, there's a calculator that has that function. There were books that they would look at for the yield. So it was all human interaction. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously that's changed 
just so dramatically, but the complexity of the world and the markets is obviously so much different. I mean, there were no derivatives in 1925. Um, and so it's just I, I, night and day from what it was. I, I was also lucky, I mean, look, 1988 being a woman, probably, well, definitely, as I look back on it now, we're still a lot to be desired. Um, but the world of women in 1988 still is so alien from what her world was in 1929 when she was called girly by traders, um, <laughs> which is just mind boggling to me. And it's funny because by the time I wanted to ask her what it was like, she just didn't really want to talk about it. And I think because she understood that there was very little ability for me to comprehend what an absolutely foreign world it was wow. that I was encountering. Yeah. So in your time on Wall Street, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced um, working in your, in your business, building your business? Uh, a few different. I mean, there was the original Leventhal, which I ran, and then there was, was starting the new business and running the new business. And those were really night and day. So I think the biggest challenge in the old business was that I was taking over or stepping into the shoes of a very iconic father, not so much my grandmother, but you know, my dad did all of this advertising and television. And he was a huge, huge personality. And everybody on Wall Street knew who he was and individual people knew who he was. And so as a young woman, there was a, a insecurity really that over time diminished about how was I going to be him? And then mm -hmm. over time, there's a realization that, no, I'm not going to be him. I'm going to become my own person. And I always described it as uh, I didn't have to step into his shoes, his wingtip shoes. I wore my own Manolos. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was, I think, the biggest sort of internal struggle. The other one is changing the nature of the business into a full wealth management firm from just a really one product firm took a lot of work in terms of not just getting clients to do more business with us, but getting our, our salespeople, our advisors to realize that they needed to expand their business. And there is a tendency for people to want to stick to what they know and a fear of, well, if I suggest something else, this person might think, I don't know what I'm talking about. They may never want to do business. You know, you sort of, your mind takes you into all these different directions. So that was kind of the biggest challenge. And, and it took time, uh, ultimately was successful, but it took time. In the new business, the challenges were entirely different. Because first of all, it was the beginning of the financial crisis, and that was just incredibly difficult. But um, it's really um, building from nothing uh, is incredibly difficult from the perspective of certainly having the capital to do that. And uh, as you and I know, for women in general, raising capital uh, is a challenge uh, to say the least. Um, mm -hmm. And, but also figuring out, okay, so what do I need to do first, second, third, 10th? And also, oh, I need to do it all at once. Um, and in terms of capital also, 
knowing that you are limited in what you can build and yet you need to build to be able to grow and have the company be successful. And so there's a really hard trade-off um, in terms of dollars and cents. Um, the one other thing, and I just recently read a LinkedIn story somebody wrote, is that people don't really appreciate how hard mentally and emotionally it is to be a founder. And it's not just a matter of, oh, wow, my day is really hard and, you know, I, I have so many things to do. It's, it's, it, it can play with your mind and weigh on your psyche and, and nobody else in the company, unless they are as equally vested and invested from a financial perspective, um, understands what that's like. And, mm -hmm. and it's, it can be crushing at times. Um, so that was the other thing. And then, um, still recognizing in the mid two thousands that there's a struggle for women and a struggle for women owned firms to get business when a lot of people don't have not, didn't necessarily see women owned firms as needing the same type of uh, accommodation or mandates or carve outs as minority owned businesses. So having to kind of, you know, beat the doors down <laughs> on that one. Um, so a whole, whole different set of, of challenges and frankly, um, you know, learned a lot, but glad not to be <laughs> doing that anymore. Well, I can definitely relate, you know, regarding yes. just the <laughs> emotional and mental and even physical, you know, turmoil yeah. that the founder goes through building a business. I mean, I experience it every day. I was even having a conversation with a friend of mine who's also a founder on the West Coast. And we we're just talking about just the pressure of it's like in a way you can't even explain it because you yeah. are so vested in this thing and it's like you're a child, but it's very complex. And it's also very isolating in a way um, because like you said, unless the people around you are equally vested, they don't really understand um, what you're going through. It and, is. And yeah, the isolation is yeah. really, really big. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I will say, and you know, I think it's important to say, and I always just kind of put things out there. I mean, I, I did go through bouts of depression because of it, uh, which were really difficult because you're feeling that way internally, but at the same time have to be the leader and keep yep. everybody going and be eternally optimistic. And it was, as I said, reading this article recently on LinkedIn that I just, I identified with so much of it. Yeah, because if you can't be optimistic as a leader of your company, what do you expect from the people who are working for you? <laughs> well, and actually, um, I think it's Sam Butterfield, I believe, who, who's the founder of Slack and founded a bunch of other businesses. I was listening to a podcast with him last summer, and he said there was one business which he actually decided to close um, somewhat abruptly because he lost the, um, you know, eternal optimism that you need as a CEO. And, mm -hmm. and ultimately I identified with that feeling as well. If you, if you can't get up every morning anymore and go in and rah, rah, feel it inside, you, it's time to, to move on. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay too, right? Yeah. Um, yes. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that I think, uh, people don't, accept about themselves is that whatever you decide to do is okay. Everything is okay. I mean, cheating, stealing, all of that, not, but I mean, the moment that you decide 
this is not right for me anymore, then that's the right thing to do. And that's okay. And just going back to what you said about, you know, being able to carve out the business and for women and raising capital, um, you know, you were talking about your experience in the 2000s and now we're in 2019. And I don't know how much better the experience is, <laughs> given that less than 2% of women are raising capital. When you break it down by minorities, the numbers are much worse. Um, you know, yeah. I, I have been patronized in so many different ways. I, was, I wrote a blog post on things that would never be said to yes. a male founder that have been said to me. And right. even recently, I got an email from somebody, you know, who said, why do you feel the need to carve out personal finances for women? Is it because men are smarter than you? <laughs> Uh, oh, that's a good you know. Idea. So exactly that. So I, you know, it's it's like there's there's still all these issues out there, and it's kind of like it. Sometimes it really aggravates me, but then as opposed to channeling how I'm feeling out in anger, I just instead channel it in the mission I'm trying to build and right. what I the narrative I'm trying to change with this business. Right. So thanks for sharing that. <laughs> No, you're welcome. Look, we all have those stories of somebody saying something when you're in a meeting and you have to kind of keep the smile and inside you're just thinking, WTF? Mm-hmm. Did this person <laughs> just actually say this to me? Um, and then have a response that's, that's measured and hopefully has a little bit of humor in it, but really just wanting to, to throttle the person or grab them by the lapels and say, did you really just say that? Yeah. So it's, it continues. So given the fact that you are known as the queen of wall street, you have had some incredible successes in business. And so I want, wanted you to just share some of your favorite or most memorable successes in business or things that just made you feel really proud about the journey you had taken to get there. Well, so first of all, the funny story about that queen of wall street title, um, <laughs> and in a way that does, which I, I was not a hundred percent thrilled at, but, um, <laughs> Fortune magazine did a story on me and it was in 2010 and it was a great it was six page. Just, I couldn't have, I couldn't have dreamt that a nicer story would be written. And the, I didn't know exactly when the magazine had come out and somebody, I was in California on a business trip and somebody emailed me and said, Oh my God, morning Joe. And I went, Oh, what? And apparently, and I subsequently saw it. So Andy Serwer, who was the editor-in-chief of Fortune at the time, had gone on Morning Joe. The cover story was the best docs for 2010, whatever it was. And Mika opens the magazine before he starts talking. And she said, I want to talk about this. And there's the article. And it says, meet the new queen of Wall Street. She said, apparently, Wall Street has a new queen. So you know, to have it be on Morning Joe like that was just so <laughs> amazing. Um, and, and you know, just, and, and obviously what, how wonderful a fortune to, to decide to write that article and, and to, to call it that. I think there've been other queens of Wall Street, but, you know, well, we, queen of our, of our own areas. So I would say though, um, one of the, the, the biggest success, and certainly this was over the, um, the period of the second from 2010 to 2017 was deciding that we would enter the corporate 
capital markets arena as a woman, minority-owned business. And within a year and a half, we were the number one woman-owned business. And within about two or three years, we were one of the top five in the whole minority, disabled veteran, women-owned group. And so we really just took that from zero to 60 um, and underwrote over a billion dollars worth of securities a year for about five years in a row. We, we were the book runners on uh, seven different transactions for GE and Toyota and a few other companies as well. So that's really what I look at and say, wow, I, I did that and I rose to the top uh, with that. That's amazing. That's incredible. Um, yeah, so I, I'm always like in awe <laughs> when I read about you or just even the few times we've met and I've talked to you, just you're an incredible woman, Alexandra. And, you know, you. Um, so I wanted to shift gears a little bit and just talk about, you know, investing, but bringing it down to a woman's personal level. Um, so right. why is it, in your opinion, so important for women to have their own financial stability? Why does that matter in today's world? Well, it matters on on so many levels. First of all, women live longer than men. We know that. So they're going to need to understand and have control over over money for a longer period of time. Um, There's the independence that comes with having your own money and investments and understanding it. Um, You know, certainly we know countless stories of uh, women who are in a bad uh, relationship emotionally or, you know, from a physical abuse point of view. And if you have your own money and understand finance, uh, the ability to get out of that and move on. Um, and look, money, money makes the world go around. We know that. And so having that power over money um, is, is critical for a woman. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I think it's really important, especially, you know, in this day and age where a lot of women are, um, either choosing to stay single or getting married later or um, being the breadwinners in their homes or the the sole household earners, um, core decision makers. And also for me, very importantly, as a mom, we are the ones primarily, you know, especially when we're single mothers um, or um, divorced mothers or sole breadwinners, we're in that space where we're passing down financial knowledge to our children. And that's a huge opportunity to, number one, help our children become financially well off, you know, teach them how to do that. And number two, teach our our children the fact that, you know, when men are not smarter than women. Right, right. And help them change that narrative too as they get older. Yeah. <laughs> We're all smart. (laughs) Well, I I have, I talked to my children about money and investing when they were really little. We we would be, I would talk to them about the Disney movies that they liked or the McDonald's Happy Meal and explain to them in terms that they could understand that they could be a part owner of that company Mm -hmm. Um, or you know, if I take them to the candy store and they wanted some really exotic, elaborate, expensive candy, I would talk to them about, I'm sure that at that point, they just didn't want to listen to me, but you know, the value of, of making decisions about what to buy, um, based on how much something costs, how much you want it and how much you might have left over after that. I also would talk to them about giving charity, um, to, to people and how important that was. And, um, 
you know, now my, so my middle child who's a girl is 22 and she works in fashion. And so she's not making big wall street money, obviously. Um, but she has an acorns account and she has a Robin hood account. And we talk about the incremental saving and how important that is, uh, for her to grow, even when she's 22 and what that money can end up being looking like when she's 50 without even thinking about it. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really important. I've been, you know, my, my twins are five years old and I've started teaching them about money. So we have a little coin jar um, that we got when we went to Crayola factory and they wanted to buy something from the store. Um, And was this one of the, it was one of the situations where it was, I had to buy something or they were going to lose their minds rolling all over the ground. They're about four years old at the time. (laughs) Let's buy something that can be useful. We bought this big Crayola crayon um, coin thing. You can put coins in this, in this crayon. Right. And that was the first step. And then now we're talking about, you know, taking those coins to the coin store and taking that money to buy stocks. And we've been buying stocks through Stockpile and it's buying things that they know. So they watch Disney. And so into the Disney store, it's buying Disney stock. And initially I didn't really think that they care. They're just like, okay, mom, whatever, you know, but then we drove by a Adidas store, not too Mm -hmm. long ago. And my son loves sneakers. And he said, look, there's Adidas. I own the store. And I was like, how do you own the store? He's like, I have stocks. (laughs) That's the best. That's what you you hope for. Exactly. So Alexandra, a lot of women who are listening to this podcast are in the very early stages of getting their finances together, um, maybe investing through their work 401k, but you know, still wanting to do more investing or maybe just even starting out with investing. Um, And so what advice would you give someone who's listening, who's getting started with investing? Well, um, it actually goes to before when I mentioned Acorns and Robinhood. Um, I am so enamored of all of these savings and investing apps because they do give people who don't even think they have the ability to invest the ability to invest in very small increments. I mean, acorns, you round up to the nearest dollar a purchase. So it may be a penny at a time, but it grows and grows, or even just doing $5 a week or even $5 a month. So I think those have the ability to really democratize the investing world like Merrill and Lynch did in the 1920s when they started selling stocks. So I think just knowing that you can start and do it on an ongoing basis in really small amounts is important. But I think uh, getting to the the general issues of of women and money, it's it's first of all understanding that you're not supposed to know this. So starting out with a lot of women do saying, "Oh, I'm really stupid. I don't know this stuff." No, mm-hmm. you're not supposed to know it. So learning and becoming educated and becoming educated is much easier than it was 25 years ago when we didn't really have the internet. There's so many ways that you can teach yourself online. Um, Obviously, Clever Girl Finance being one of those. (laughs) Um, but, But also learn if you, if you do deal with a financial advisor, um, understanding that that person is not just there to 
make money for themselves on you. They're there to be your teacher. And if they are not somebody who wants to do that for you, or you feel comfortable asking questions and and being taught by, then finding somebody who will provide that, um, that service in that way is, is really important. Um, so once you kind of get rid of women, get rid of this idea of, Oh, I'm, I'm really dumb and I don't know this stuff and I don't have a lot of money. Um, and just let themselves start to learn. I think that is kind of the first step in becoming a real investor. Yeah, I definitely agree. And a lot of times we put all this pressure on ourselves about the things that we should know, that we right. have to know. And it kind of, in many ways, it keeps us keep us keeps us stuck because we're assuming all these things we should know, but we're not, you know, getting out of that space to actively go actively go learn those things. Right. Um, and so that's really great advice. Right. And speaking of advice, what advice would you give yourself about money, life, or business, or all three? Um, so I, I think the really important thing when you have a business is to, uh, know the amount that you are willing to invest in the business or guarantee in terms of debt and, and recognize that if you reach that level and you're not, the business really isn't where it needs to be and you're going to need to continue putting money in, just being able to say, okay, I reached my limit and, and I just, this is, I, I shouldn't continue. Um, if I'm going to continue to be the one who's just going to have to fund it. But I mean, you, and it goes to that sort of optimism that we talked about before. So it's a combination of both of those, but, um, and, and, you know, I don't need to say that and, and, you know, cut off millions of, you know, would be, uh, rent the runways out there. Um, but, <laughs> But I, I do think it's important to be wise about how much money you put into, into your own business. Um, but I think overall, having the, um, and this goes to what I was saying a little bit before as well, um, eliminating from your language and your psyche those statements that were beliefs that make you sound like um, you don't have confidence, you don't know what you're doing, you know, that, that I said it and I've heard it just so many times over my career of the, I know I'm really stupid. This is a really dumb question. I know I don't have as much money as you probably deal with and I'm probably bothering you. Like once you stop and say, okay, I'm not going to say those things anymore. Maybe I'll figure out a different way to phrase things. Like instead of saying, I'm really stupid, say I have a novice question. I'm a beginner. I'd like someone to help teach me. Once you change that psyche, I think you really change your relationship with, with money and investing. Oh, that is, you know, the mindset, the, the mindset, the self-talk, that is so yeah. incredibly important to how successful you become because I'm a firm believer that you will do what you believe that you can do. Absolutely. And if you don't believe it, then you're not going to do it because you're not going to be compelled to make the effort or take the steps or even push or challenge yourself to do that. So that's, right. yeah, awesome. Right. So Alexander, this has been awesome. I appreciate your time. But before I let you go, I just have a couple more questions. Mm -hmm. um, what is your clever girl superpower? <laughs> so my superpower is um, a net, is my network. 
um, and using my network and figuring out um, how to get something done or get to someone with the network that I have. And I love that. It is sort of this, this power of like, okay, I need to get to X, Y, Z person because I know that they're, you know, they're investing in something and I'm working on this capital raise for a company and just figuring out, okay, who do I know? How do I like lay out the steps to, to get to that person? And almost invariably I am able to do that. And it really comes from having just developed a network over time and knowing that somebody I meet um, now may not, it just may be that years down the line, there's something that I can do for him or her, or he can do, or she can do for me. And, and that's just like, to me, that's what business is all about is using the people that you, that, you know, to help build. Yeah. That's amazing. Your network is your net worth. That's right. the saying, right? Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Very important. I, you know, when I first started my business, like stepping out of my Myself to go network is one of my biggest areas of discomfort. It's completely out of my comfort zone, but I've kind of, you know, worked, I've been working on it over the last several years. And it's now something that even though I don't like to do, I force myself to do it. And it has made tremendous impact. It has opened incredible opportunities for me by just forcing myself out of that comfort zone. So if you're listening to this and networking is not your thing, um, find ways to make yourself get into that space where you're able to meet people and introduce yourself to people and talk about what you're doing because the opportunities, the opportunities from the people that you meet, you never know who can help you, who can open a door for you and the changes that can come as a result. It is also really important though, to understand that networking isn't immediately is meeting someone and immediately saying, hi, you know, can you do this for me? It's because that's, you're not going to build a network that way. Has my business card. (laughs) Right, right. And it's, it's being able to talk about yourself to that person, but recognizing their body language, when maybe it sounds like you're kind of selling yourself a little bit too much. Um, You know, it really is. It's, it's creating a relationship. Exactly. Um, yeah. So being understanding of that and somebody very wise once said to me that, you know, your network is a living, breathing thing. You have to nurture it. You have to water it, but it cannot always be about you asking for things. Um, and this person who was an incredibly successful banker um, who sadly passed away a few years ago, but he had a call list every day of 10 people, like some of the, mostly the top people in the world in business and stuff. And it was, it was just, Hey, I wanted to call because I saw you did this deal. Even it wasn't with my firm, but I saw you did this deal and I'm so excited for you. That's so great. Or, you know, Hey, I saw this story about you guys. I know it's a tough time. I just want to let you know, I'm thinking of you. That's how you build a network. Communicating with somebody when there's really no benefit to you at that moment to doing it. Yeah. It's relationship building at its finest. Like, you right. know, yeah. So 
that's great advice. So, Alexander, how can people learn more about you? Um, where can they go to, to read your articles, et cetera? So right now, um, for the most part, I'm writing articles on LinkedIn. Um, so you can find me there. Uh, a lot of them are about uh, women, money, and finance. Um, also, if anybody is up for a really fun, enjoyable uh, read, I did write a novel a few years ago called The Recessionistas, which is a... <laughs> um, it's sort of satire and expose of Wall Street and New York society during the financial crisis. I guarantee you'll stay up all night reading it and you're just like an enjoyable book. Um, so you can read that. Um, and then just, you know, I do other things here and there. I actually do a lot of work um, with a company called Insight Tech, which is uh, going to be the future of brain surgery, actually. It's not wow. a base of brain surgery. And I was one of the very first beneficiaries in the United States almost three years ago of a, a brain procedure um, that actually uh, something that affects 10 million people in the United States. It's called essential tremor. It's when your hands shake a lot. And I was uh, one of the, I was the second person in New York to have this done. It's basically targeted, this is a longer story, but targeted ultrasound beams that basically um fix the, the handshake. And so it changed my life immensely. Wow. So I'll do things here and there for, for the company, but you'll, over the years, you'll hear a lot more about them. Um, but right now that's, that's it more to come in the future. I'm sure. And I'll be picking up your book on Amazon today. Good. <laughs> I'm going to stay up all night then reading it. I can't wait. But, and actually, even though it's a novel, um, it has a lot of finance lessons in it that you won't even realize until you're done. And you're, oh, now I know what a CDO is. <laughs> so. And I'll be sure to put a link to it in the show notes as well as to the company you mentioned and um, also Great. You know, one of your articles from LinkedIn. Wonderful. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us and for sharing your knowledge and for letting us get to know you a bit more. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And look, I'm glad we were on that panel together. And now we're part of one another's network. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Alex. You are welcome. All right. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to this episode with myself and Alex. I had a great time talking with her and I hope you are inspired, motivated, and excited about going out there to achieve your financial wellness and your business success. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. You can do that on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and basically everywhere you listen to podcast episodes. And you can also watch videos on the Clever Girl Finance YouTube channel. And if you haven't already picked up your copy of the Clever Girl Finance book, you can find it everywhere books are sold in every format. So ebook, audiobook, and physical copy. I will talk to you guys on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening.